we want to have our sweat ID system on everyone to teach people about their health non-invasively so that they can be learning about, you know, their different health parameters, whether that be, you know, how, how hydrated they are, if they need to eat something, other other, you know, indicators in their sweat that can, you know, give an alert so that we're really using wearables to prevent people from getting sick. And in a wearable like garment that, you know, people are not, uh, you know, averse to wearing. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Chelsea Monty Bromer. Chelsea founded Sweat ID back in December of 2017 in order to make personalized health sensors available for everyone. She began working with health sensors back in 2010 while developing a fabric-based temperature sensor for use in prosthetic sockets. With her research focused on bioelectrochemical interfaces, Dr. Chelsea Montebromer received her PhD in 2009 from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and is currently an associate professor of chemical and biomedical engineering at Cleveland State University. I very much enjoyed covering the breadth of Chelsea's research in bioelectrochemical interfaces, which we will cover in more depth in our conversation, the commercial implications and applications of it through the work she's doing at SweatID, which just recently closed on its pre-seed funding, bridging the academia and entrepreneurship divide, and ultimately the market at large for wearables. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chelsea Monty Bromer. I wanted to start with your your academic and research focus, the the world of bioelectrochemical interfaces, which in preparation for this, I found really fascinating (laughs) and I knew nothing about (laughs) But I'd I'd love to start with, you know, where your interest in that came from and, and what ultimately drew you down the path of pursuing chemical and, and biomolecular engineering. So I started my academic journey. So I did my undergrad in chemical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. And we were about, I don't know, like two semesters in and we had to go as part of an assignment to a career fair and talk to, you know, the traditional chemical engineering companies and I went to my advisor right after and said, you know, I don't think this is for me. Like, I'm not, yeah, you know, I don't think I could work for any of these companies. This doesn't seem like a good fit. Um, and he encouraged me to start thinking about, you know, going to graduate school. So I was always kind of interested in how biology and kind of the health and medical field integrated with kind of the traditional engineering. So I did a minor in biomedical engineering. All of my undergraduate research was kind of in you know, growing bone cells, osteoblasts, all these different, you know, kind of bio applications. And so when I started looking for PhD programs, I was really drawn to the University of Illinois, um, Urbana-Champaign. But when I got there, I realized that the researchers that I was really drawn to were all electrochemists. So I did my master's degree and almost fundamentally just only electrochemistry, so no biology. And then I changed from my master's to my PhD, I changed advisors. And I ended up in the group of a serial entrepreneur. Uh, his name is Richard Maisel. And he had started numerous companies, had run his family's company for several years. And his take on research was very, let's take what we're doing in the lab and make sure we can scale it to something that people can use. And so I started doing things there, really combining 
the biology and biomedical that I had done as an undergrad with the kind of electrochemistry that I had started in my, my master's and really was working on uh, sensors for chemical warfare agents. So electrochemical biosensors for chemical warfare agents and working on every, everything from um, the pre-concentrations. So how are we going to concentrate these to a you know detectable limit, to doing detection, to doing field testing. Uh, so I got to work you know, hand in hand with a bunch of different types of engineering and really hone uh, my sensors piece. So I had kind of a little bit of biomedical, a little bit of electrochemistry and a little bit of biosensing. When I started at the University of Akron as an assistant professor, I didn't really want to be in the defense space. It's really hard to get funding. It's a little, it was a little bit dangerous. I was sick of kind of being in a bunker testing chemical warfare agents. <laughs> so I started doing kind of wearable health sensing and looking into how can I use this electrochemistry to, you know, detect things at the surface of the skin, to look at how microbes are influencing corrosion. And so I started just kind of taking all of these pieces that I had been putting together in my toolbox. And that's how we kind of really developed our group into one of the leaders in kind of using non-invasive electrochemistry to really study how microbes and biology interact with their surroundings. Oh, that's, that's a fascinating journey there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just keeping it at the high level yeah. here yep. to just kind of set the stage for, because it, it's really, as I'm understanding, it's sitting at the intersection of a lot yep. of different yep. Yep. areas of, of focus here, right? So wh- how would you describe you know, the, the old explain it like I'm five mm-hmm. kind of thing for a bioelectrochemical interface and how you think about applications at a, at a high level. At a high level. We, yeah. So yeah. we really think about studying how biology changes the how electrons flow. So if you think about power, so how electrons flow without changing their environment. So we don't want to influence them in any way. We don't want to we, want, we don't want to just listen to what they're doing and learn from them. Um, so we do that using electrochemistry because it allows us to not have to change their environment and to really listen to what they're doing. Hmm. And so when uh, and maybe maybe there aren't, but when you think of the the kind of standard mm-hmm. applications, mm-hmm. Um, you know, in 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 the real world for bioelectrochemical interfaces, mm-hmm. you know, what are the kinds of things we're talking about here? Yeah, so you can think about things um, like, you know, a traditional biosensor might apply a potential. So it's adding power to the system. So it's kind of changing how things operate. Um, a biofuel cell might change the conditions that a typical set of microbes might grow in. And so we just really want to take kind of all of that change out and just let let biology kind of do it, run its course. So we don't apply any potentials, even with our wearable sensors, we just measure resistance. So we're really big on you know, allowing the body or allowing uh, microbes in an oil field, for example, to just do their thing. And we just report back what they're doing. Is that concept that you came across thinking about how to scale the research that you're doing in the real world? Is that, is that, is that something that is not standard, you know, kind of MO uh, for, for the, for the research, or is that really kind of a novel take on, you know, as we're researching new concepts here, how can we, how can we make sure it it has some general applicability? Right. And so I would say that when I was a graduate student, it was not the norm, you know, it was typically you focused on something 
really specific. If your grandma asked you at dinner what you were doing, you really couldn't explain it because it was very um, niche and very high level. Um, But I think that the National Science Foundation has done a really good job of trying to change that attitude in academia, right? And um, so through their National Science Foundation Innovation Core program, they're really trying to take, you know, really NSF funded core science problems and teach people how to take them from the lab scale to something that could be you know, scaled up and given to the everyday person. So I would say, you know, when I was in grad school, it probably wasn't as common. And now it's starting to become more and more common with as that program grows and gains in popularity. I guess one of the things that I'd be interested to get your perspective on, because I, I feel like as we maybe transition a little bit to the, the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. of it, that the origin for ideas that people are working on often come from identifying a problem first right. and then thinking about the the potential solutions. Is it flipped in 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 your model and, and how you think about it? Or as you're thinking and doing this research, is it coming from a, a place of having identified a problem uh, and then thinking about the potential applications or having discovered some kind of technology in the the bioelectrochemical mm-hmm. you know world? what could we use this for to solve other problems? Right. Yeah. So we start, we start with a problem, right? I think like most good, you know, research ideas, we start with a problem. I think where we kind of put a different spin on it is we, we are constantly making sure one is something we can scale up. So, you know, there's many different ways to solve a problem. That's kind of one of the criteria we use. Um, And also a lot of our research, I would say 90% of the research in my lab is, led by, you know, how the end user is going to use it. So what are their key criteria? You know, scientifically, there's a set of key requirements that we have to make sure we hit. But then are we also hitting the criteria for usability? Um, And so those really from a very early stage of research in my group, we start with kind of those problems. And I actually make all of my grad students go through the NSF I-Corps program in some stage, whether it's at the University of Akron Research Foundation at their sites or the whole, you know, going to the national teams um, because I think it makes them a better researcher because they can understand, okay, the end user is an endurance athlete. They're going to need to wear this for, you know, four plus hours. So I need to think about biocompatibility, chafing, battery life, you know, so yes, they're solving the problem of making a non-woven material that's selective to sodium, for example, but their set of criteria includes how their end user is going to going to use this. And I think it's really important as you know a researcher, and I think it helps them to better focus when they're in the lab, even if they're doing something that maybe the end users never going to notice <laughs> that they're mm. that they're asking these questions. So, so as we tie uh, Rusense into the mm-hmm. into the narrative mm-hmm. here, you know what what I guess were those criteria that you were contemplating at that point? What were the questions you were asking? What were you trying to validate? Yeah. So the RuSense product is actually, it started out not where it ended. Um, So we started (laughs) out as a wearable fabric sensor. So the reason why it's a fabric, because people ask me this a lot, you know, why, why isn't a, why isn't it just a hard plastic material or flexible plastic? Uh, The reason why it's a fabric is because it was initially designed to go in prosthetic sockets. So at the stump socket interface, we wanted to monitor temperature, um, different conditions in the sweat. Basically, we wanted to make sure that it never sweat. So it was supposed to kick on a cooling device. So we'd look at temperature, we'd look at moisture, and then it would kick on a cooling device. So if you were coming back, uh, we were funded by the VA. 
So if you're coming back, uh, you had a lower limb amputation, you wanted to still be active, you still wanted to run, you could wear this and you wouldn't have to worry about chafing or blisters um, because mm. you know this would prevent your stump socket from sweating. But what we found is the cooling device was very power intense. So it's basically like carrying a car battery around to you know, run a 5k. So that wasn't going to really work in the, in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. So we, we did the NSF i program and we started with, okay, we have a fabric sensor. We can do temperature, we can do lactate and we can do sodium, you know, thinking obviously every athlete's going to want all three. Every person's going to want all three of these things. They're, they need to know all of this information. Um, we'll have a, a suite of sensors that can do it. And so we kind of started with a wide net. And we really quickly honed in on endurance athletes and really high-level athletes want to know how much sodium they're losing in their sweat so they can hydrate properly, perform better, and reduce injury. And so we started with this kind of wide net. We ended up with how do you hydrate? What are you using right now? What do you wish? If you could wave a magic wand, that kind of magic wand experiment, what would your Garmin watch tell you that you don't already know. And it just kept coming back to, to sodium. And so now when we're asking questions, it's much more specific. How would you wear it? Where would you wear it? Um, but when we really started, it was this wide net of different things. So as you kind of hone in on, on sodium as a, as a focus mm -hmm. for the pursuit of this idea, what does the product development actually look like? Like how do you, how do you build something right. that you could test. <laughs> right. And so that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so what we, what we initially did was we just, we would hand sew the fabric with conductive thread, you know, a tiny piece of fabric, and we would just tape it to people's bodies just to see if it worked. Um, and so people yeah. were at the very onset of this. So around 2018 timeframe, people were just sitting on a bike hooked up to a big piece of electronics equipment. Um, and then we slowly started scaling everything down. So we scaled the electronics down. Um, we work very closely with another small business, Tiny Circuits um, in downtown Akron. So they initially just took, okay, we have all these chips. Let's just stack them on top of one another. And you can record things onto an SD card. Then once we had that validated, we moved to a printed circuit board and went to Bluetooth. And so it's kind of been the same thing. When we moved away from tape, we just got an ACE bandage tennis elbow strap, cut two holes in it and and put our sensor in it that way. And now we're working with the Kent State School of Fashion to get something designed that people can actually wear. So it's just been kind of taking it one step at a time and doing a lot of, okay, what do we have in the lab that might not look good, but that we can kind of put together, glue onto this, cut off of it to make it, to make it work to the place where we now have a finalized design that we can start to scale up. So what we have right now doesn't look pretty, it works but moving from that to something that looks nice. Uh, so it's kind of been a, a kind of four year iterative process of tackling one piece at a time and making sure we can, can scale it up and make it look better. And, and what, what did the, the team look like through those kind of different iterations? So we've really, as a small startup in Northeast Ohio, really benefited from uh, the entrepreneurial service provider or the ESP network. So we've only ever really had one full-time employee and a team of interns up until right now. And we've been really fortunate to work with Bounce, the Bounce Innovation Hub, through their Entrepreneur in Residence program. Um, they have a lot of facilities, so marketing. They have a makerspace that we can use. They have tech support. 
we've been able to use the University of Akron Research Foundation and rely very heavily on them. Um, Case Western and Bob Sopko have been super helpful. And then even through COVID, the University of Toledo, we've been able to even virtually resource with them um, to help with marketing and rebranding. And so as a, a small business, we've used them to act like a bigger company. And now we've done, we've finally finished our fundraise of $750,000 for a pre-seed round. So now we've brought on a CEO, a chief scientist, and a full-time chemical engineer who's actually one of our interns for three years to bring her on full-time. So now we kind of have this team in place. Uh, But until then, it's just kind of been one full-time scientist and and a (laughs) team of kind of part-time entrepreneurial service providers and part-time people that have just been helping kind of fill in the gaps. Well, congratulations on the raise. That's very exciting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious at what point in the in the the life cycle of of the company when the the naming uh, convention switched from from Rusense to oh, Sweat ID yeah. and, and the story behind the name. Yeah. So so when we started, I was at the University of Akron, and so for people who don't know. The University of Akron has one of the few female mascots in the country. So they're, uh, they're Fear the Roo. Their mascot is Zippy. She is a female kangaroo. And so as a female-founded company, I really wanted to pay tribute to her. And so we came up with the name Rusense uh, to kind of give an homage to Zippy. And then in 2020, I left the University of Akron. And we started you know, really reaching out to um, our launch customers and end users. And nobody knew what a Rusense was. <laughs> Um, so we took some <laughs> we took some time in 2021 uh, with the help of uh, Kristen Shinover at the University of Toledo to you know rebrand, rename, and kind of come up with something that you know our end user kind of gets it. Okay, they're they're telling me what my sweat's like. They're giving me my sweat ID, so something that's a little bit more tangible for our end users. So off the bat of the the funding, uh, I'm curious how. Mm-hmm how that pitch went, you know, how, how are you, t- how are you talking mm-hmm. and thinking about the market? What does competition look like? Right. And, and just kind of the, the state of the, the company itself. The company itself. Yeah. So, so when we talk about like the future of wearables and where the wearables market's going, you know, people really want everything to be personalized, right? So the market is really moving much more towards personalized fitness, personalized, healthcare, virtual health, telehealth, everything's kind of moving in this virtual personalized space. And so we feel like we really fit in very nicely with that personalized health space. But one of the things that I think, and I guess time will tell that the future of wearables really is, is going to be in the smart textile market. So right, so everybody's got the watches now, but how many different pieces can you wear? How many different add-ons to your watch can you get? I really think the future of wearables is going to be in these smart textiles integrating into something that you're already wearing, you already feel comfortable with, but now it's going to tell you, you know, how how much sodium you lost, how you need to hydrate, what you need to be doing, and we kind of see it growing as a whole platform, right? So multiple sensors on this fabric telling you, you know, how healthy you are in a non-invasive way. Um, and so I really think that's kind of where that's where I see the future of wearables going. And there's several different, you know, smart textile companies. One of them just closed around with Drive by DraftKings as the lead investor um, called Nextiles. And so they're doing like movement, um, motion capture, heart rate, those kinds of things. So not in the the sweat sensing, but you know, those kinds of things are really exciting to athletes because then they're not wearing one more thing. It's just right into what they've 
we're already going right. to put on. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. A- as you kind of explored the, I don't know, hydration generally, like a, as a as mm-hmm. a market, mm-hmm. what were, what did you like learn um, <laughs> through that process, and what what right. do people not understand that they should ab- about this? Right. So one of the things I think that's a very common misconception, especially when you're talking to a non-athlete, right? So when you're talking to an endurance athlete, they're like, yes, I have every, you know, most of them have every step of their race worked out what they're going to drink when they're going to drink it. But when you're talking to investors, the biggest misconception they have is, okay, I'm thirsty. I just drink water. Um, It'll be fine. (laughs) Everything's great. And actually that's, that misconception is, is actually deadly because if you're drinking too much water, and you're not replacing the sodium that you're losing or the electrolytes that you're losing, that's when you get overhydrated. And that's really where the highest instance of death um, and and very high level athletes um, comes. And so, you know, kind of fighting this investor battle of, okay, just drink more water was, was really difficult. But one of the things we really learned is that a lot of athletes are keeping track of their hydration very, very accurately, how much water they lose, how much water they take in, what they think the amount of sodium that they're losing is. And in Gatorade did a, a very large study and you know only 40% of athletes can actually guess that right. So they're trying, they want this information, but they're guessing and they're saying, okay, I think my sweat is salty. I think I sweat a lot. You know, my, my clothes are really wet when I'm done running and they don't really know what they're losing and really know what they need. And so it becomes this kind of guess and check circle that often ends up with them in the medical tent, not finishing races are not performing at their best. Um, and so that's really what, what we learned because I was one of those, okay, you're thirsty. You just drink water people before I, <laughs> I started this journey. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I unfortunately can empathize with the, the downside of, <laughs> of the improper sodium balance, yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, having <laughs> fainted in a soccer game in, in middle school. Yep. 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 <laughs> Definitely. It made a lot of sense to me just when I was reading about it. So I, I think I've understood most of the the kind of use cases um, that you've worked out to be, you know, athletics, potentially still prosthetics or, or the military coming back. Yep. How, how do you yep. think about potentially the different applications here of, of the technology and, and of... Right. So we are, you know, our first use case, our first product is going to be focused on um, endurance athletes or athletes that we consider in high sweat sports. So people like on a soccer team, a hockey team, football. And as we grow, really what what's lacking right now is the data. Um, so no one's been able to measure sodium concentration in real time as athletes are in their activity. So we have some, st- we have um, information from the Gatorade Sports Science Institute of, you know, points in time during a very set, you know, they were on a cycling bike and they did this, this duration exercise. So as we get um, information, one of the things that we're going to do is start to machine learn the data that we get. So what are our athletes doing? Um, what does their sodium profile look like? How much are they losing? When are they losing it? So that we can start to go into a more consumer market. So starting with kind of this these high sweat athletes, people who really understand this, moving into a consumer market, um, and all at the same time, making sure that we're putting everything into place so we can move into a medical or a military market. So making sure we have all of the FDA approvals that we need, we have everything quality controlled and audited, so that once we have this data, and we feel really confident that, you know, we have some an algorithm that can help assist people Uh, without just, you know, this is how much sodium you should intake. 
um, but really to start predicting dehydration and overhydration, uh, then we can move into those medical markets. So it's kind of a, a three-step, like a three-phase plan um, for us to grow from you know a very small subset of elite high-sweat athletes to a broader general or more medical market. And when you just kind of extend that even further, looking out into the mm-hmm. future, what, what do you really see as the, the vision for the whole company, the, the impact that, that you would hope to have, you know, looking back in, in retrospect? Right. So we want to have our sweat ID system on everyone to teach people about their health non-invasively so that they can be learning about, you know, their different health parameters, whether that be, you know, how, how hydrated they are, if they need to eat something, other other you know indicators in their sweat that can you know give an alert so that we're really using wearables to prevent people from getting sick and in a wearable like garment that you know people are not uh, you know averse to wearing so something they'll put something on it'll tell you how healthy you are no lab tests as a needle phobe <laughs> that's something really important to me but that's really where i see us moving you know we're starting small you know i've talked to a lot of smart textile manufacturers who have just jumped right into the entire garment, measuring multiple things and have kind of fallen short because, you know, they can't make it at the price point that people will pay for it. So we're starting small, growing uh, with something that's of, of, you know, really high interest. And I see us in five to 10 years having a suite of these sensors that are teaching people about their health non-invasively. If just to talk at a macro level for a sec if if yeah. wearables yeah. you know don't take off in the in the way yeah. that you're thinking about them what would be the reasons why like what what are what are the barriers to to adoption here that's a great question and i think the the biggest barrier to adoption is how you give people that information right so there's a lot of great wearables that tell you a lot of great things but the average user just it's too much <laughs> for them right they can't like okay this is like you know, this is how much sugar I need. This is how much the sodium I need. This is how much potassium I lost. Like it's, it's too much. So, you know, I think that as an, you know, a maker of a wearable and all makers of wearables really need to be thinking about how we give people that data and giving it to them in usable pieces that make a difference in their life. Because if we don't do that, it doesn't matter how accurate we are, how comfortable we are, how pretty we look. We're not giving people information in a way that they can process it. It's not going to matter. And so I think that's going to be the, it's not going to be accuracy. It's not going to be form factor. It's going to be how people interact with the the data that they're given. So just, just over the the next year, you know, what, what is the roadmap look like? What are the things that you're most excited Mm -hmm. about? Yeah. So, so we're really excited because in the next year, um, our plan is to move from one a device that it looks like a scientist put together <laughs> in the lab, right? So right now we have a lot of devices that, you know, you look at pictures and it looks like a scientist puts together in the lab. I'm excited to move to something that has been designed and manufactured at a larger scale that looks like a really well done professional product. And so to do that, you know, we're going to have to move into a manufacturing facility. So we're really excited about scaling up, getting all the equipment that we need in place and then also working, like I said, with the Kent State School of Fashion. And I'm now at Cleveland State. So working with some data analytics people at Cleveland State University um, to help us really grow from 
you know, we put this together, we glued it together, we got it to work. We can make, I don't know, 10 of them in a day to making, you know, a thousand of them in a week and being able to, to really mass produce. That's what I'm most excited about. What on the flip side has you most nervous? Well, it's, you know, it's really, uh, it's nerve wracking, right? Because now I don't, ha- and I don't want to say this, like, I don't have a lot of control over it, right? It's, it's going outside of my lab, a couple people <laughs> making it, going to a big piece of equipment, right? Where there's not as much control. You, you have to trust your work over the last, you know, we've been working on this since 2010. So my work over the last 12 years, I have to trust that. But it's also very scary, right? It's a step into a new, a new direction and kind of letting people take it and run with it. It's kind of terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is. Maybe in, in a similar kind of vein, how is it bridging or crossing the, the bridge, I guess, between mm-hmm. you know, the academia and, and research and entrepreneurship on the, the other side and, and just your reflections on that process and journey so far? So I would say now that I'm at Cleveland State, I'm very fortunate because they really value kind of that, that entrepreneurial spirit. And, and so, you know, my research group and my, you know, and RuSense, right? So my Cleveland State Research Group and RuSense have labs right down the hall from each other. So they're very accommodating. They've rented us space. Um, They've, you know, helped us a lot to, you know, get things off the ground. And so, you know, the University of Akron Research Foundation really helped us get started. I still interact with them on a regular basis, but to finally have kind of my research group and my my startup company right down the hall from each other, be able to interact, everybody kind of sits together and eats lunch. So it's it's really fostering ideas a lot faster, fostering collaboration a lot faster. So I feel very fortunate to be at a university that really, one, wants to grow, you know, tech in Northeast Ohio and also wants to to bring jobs here and really values that, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit and allowing people to to kind of have this, you know, side hustle that doesn't necessarily have to take away from their academic uh, pursuit. This might be a little in the weeds, but I was just generally curious about the process of, you know, creating a a for-profit company uh, leveraging the the technology, the research uh, that's coming out of the, the academic institutions. How how does the, the IP process work there? So uh, the RuSense technology, and actually I have another startup company called Correlytics that started at the University of Akron as well. So anything that a professor kind of does with their research grant is owned by the university. Um, so the university files the IP um, they do the IP maintenance, but we're also very fortunate that the University of Akron and Cleveland State really want to get these ideas commercialized. Uh, so we have an exclusive license in both cases, as long as we're paying, you know, our patent up, upkeep fees and our royalty fees. Um, that license will belong to us, and so you know, in that way, it's it's really fortunate because although we do have to kind of go through a couple more hurdles in proving to the university that it's worth patenting. You know, we're very fortunate to have both of both University of Akron and Cleveland State be willing to, you know, help us patent our technologies and give us those license agreements. And they're they're very fair. They're not anything crazy. They're very fair license agreements. And, you know, I'm an inventor on both of the patents. So, you know, I benefit from from those license agreements as well. So it's it's nice to 
to be in a place. Some universities are not like that. They do not allow you to, you know, they don't give you an exclusive license. They kind of take it out for bidding and see if anybody else wants it. And so we're very fortunate in Northeast Ohio to have two universities who get it and really want to work with their inventors. Yeah. I'll pass the the magic wand question back to you. And I would like okay. to get your perspective <laughs> on if you could wave it and with the intent of having more academics uh, and researchers mm-hmm. pursue entrepreneurship, what would you change? Like what would facilitate more people doing what you're doing? So I think if I had a magic wand, right, I would love for universities to put in some of their own money, right, to help these startups grow. Um, and so actually my chair and I have been talking about, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had an entrepreneurship postdoc, right, that if your research as a PhD student turns into something that you want to turn into a company, helping with some of the salary, because there's a lot of grants in Northeast Ohio where you can get money for supplies and everything else under the sun, but not people. So I think if academics and academics, you know, like to make sure that their students have jobs, I think if we could wave a magic wand and have a pool of, you know, maybe graduate student stipends or a a postdoc in entrepreneurship, I think that would really move the needle. And I think that would be, I have several graduate students who would love that. (laughs) I I could imagine. In in prep for for this, I I came across something that I hadn't really heard of before, um, but I really liked the idea of, and I I also wanted to get your perspective on, which was this whole concept of orphan technologies Mm -hmm. um, at at different uh, institutions. And just maybe you could describe what those are and, and, and we can go from there. Yeah. So actually we started out as an orphan technology, right? So we had, we had a technology, it was for, you know, for use in a prosthetic, for use for a totally different application. And so what happens when you have an orphan technology is you have something that was designed for project X, you know, use case X, and that falls through. And now, you know, it's just sitting there. So it's either something that was patented or something that could easily be patented. And now it's just sitting on a shelf. And so I, I really think that this, the National Science Foundation and this i program, helping you really dig into product market fit is really reducing that because people are coming in and they're quickly realizing, okay, I wrote this grant to the FDA for XYZ purpose and I couldn't sell 10 of those. But if I transition the technology over here and I look at you know more of a consumer focus or focus in defense that's going to get, help me out a lot. And so I think, you know, even if we could, you know, ma- waving a magic wand again, if we could get the NSF to go and look at some of these technologies that are sitting there patented, but unlicensed, different use cases for them as part of the i program, you know, if you don't have an idea of your own, come do the program and we'll give you <laughs> one of these uh, previous ideas. I think that would be great. Yeah, no, that sounds like it would be very cool. Is there <laughs> a, a particular cadence by which, orphan technologies are revisited ever or or they just they just kind of sit there i think they just kind of sit there until you know so there are firms that will go through and like look through patents and see if there's anything that you know that's not being used yet and see if they can focus them but no i don't think that there's at least not to my knowledge there's anyone doing that on a regular cadence so i think you know if the national science foundation ever has people that really want to do the program but don't have their own idea i think that would be a great a great thing to add. Yeah, no, it's, it just seems very interesting. Well, I'll, I'll tie it back a little bit. I am just more on the on your own research. 
I think similar to to the development on uh, on Rusense and, and Sweat ID, you know, what 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 is most exciting to you about the the research you're doing right now? And so I'm really excited about really for the first time. I feel like all of the different parts of my toolbox are being used at the same time. So I've always felt like, okay, I'm using electrochemistry or I'm using you know sensor design, but I really feel like now for the first time everything's being used all at once. Um, and that's really exciting. And it's this, you know, it all kind of reached about a year ago. It all kind of like fell into place and everything started like operating kind of in sync. And so I feel very fortunate that now I can start to think about new applications. Okay, how can we use this for something else? How can we, you know, how can we use, you know, studying the bio, the bioelectrochemical interface in a totally different way and and working with new collaborators and bringing new people on board um, where we've kind of spent the last 10 years really like hyper-focused on proving it out and make, making sure, you know, we really had the techniques available to, to do these things. And now I feel like we're really starting to run. So we were walking for a very long time. Um, and so the most exciting thing for me is that everything's falling into place. And every time I look at a problem, it's using kind of all of the pieces of my toolbox instead of just, you know, picking certain ones. Yeah, no, that, that is very exciting. I think especially considering how many circles are overlapping where you're at the yeah, center right, of that right. Venn diagram. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of never thought that that would happen. Um, and actually, you know, my application to Cleveland State made me really start to focus, right? Because you have to put together this, you know, long roadmap. And, you know, up until then, it had always just felt like kind of multiple, very distinct projects, but now starting to see how they all intertwine together and taking a step back. And really focusing on everything has really been helpful. What do you think might be the second order implications of of kind of mass adoption of being able to track this this data about ourselves? You know, maybe not maybe some of the less obvious ones that that you thought about that it, it might allow for us to do some things that maybe we haven't been able to to do before. So yeah, so one of the things that we're really interested in, and this is you know very long term, is you know being able to monitor inflammation and infection in implants. So whether they be like dental implants, hip, hip replacement. So we're really excited about the concept of, you know, can we extend the things that we're already doing outside the body or, you know, in, you know, we do a lot of stuff with oil and gas. Can we extend that to inside the body? And I think, you know, that's really some of the things that we don't think about. Um, I think, you know, being able to monitor stress. So cortisol levels is something that I'm really interested in. So if you think about, you know, okay, you're sitting there, you're doing hot yoga, are you really calm? You know, <laughs> really getting, I don't know if that'll stress people out more, but, you know, being able to, to monitor a lot of these, you know, mental health as well as overall health biomarkers, I think is going to be really important. Are there any parts of, of your journey of, of sweat ID of the whole process that, that you'd like to touch on that we haven't talked about yet? No, I think we touched on, I think we touched on all of the, the key highlights. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll bookend this then with our closing question that, that we have everyone on the, the podcast speak to, which is mm-hmm. not necessarily for your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that mm-hmm. other folks may not know about. Uh, hidden gem, if you will. Okay, hidden. So I don't know how hidden it is, but you know our favorite our favorite place to go as a group is Liwa in uh, Asia Town. So that's our 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 favorite 
hidden gem, I guess. Good food, great place to talk about science and entrepreneurship. So we really, you know, give them a plug. So we've done, we've had a lot of great discussions. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, there to help guide our process. <laughs> that is the perfect place to discuss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Chelsea, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on and, and sharing your story. Um, so thank you very much. Yes, thank you so much for having me. If, uh, if folks have anything they would like to follow up with you about, uh, whether that be your, your research or, or sweat ID or, or otherwise, what is the, the best way for them to do so? The best way for them to do so is to go to the Cleveland State website, find my email and send me an email. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.